All right, so welcome to Hallows. Uh, my name is Corey, uh, if you haven't met me before. Um, lately, we've been going through the book of Daniel uh, for a few weeks now. And just to give a quick recap before we get started, uh, for the first six chapters, there were a lot of these short, episodic uh, stories about Daniel and his friends in exile. Um, and then starting in chapter seven, we took this turn uh, into a series of visions that Daniel has. And all of the visions show this heavenly perspective on what is happening in world history. Uh, today, as Jake mentioned, uh, our passage is Daniel 9. The first half of the passage is Daniel's prayer of confession. And then the second half is God's response, which is delivered through the angel Gabriel. Uh, we have a lot to cover, uh, so I'm just going to go ahead and pray, and then we're going to get started. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, help us uh, to learn how to confess and repent before you today, uh, that you would help us to humble ourselves before you. Um, may you teach us through your word. God, would you help me uh, in giving this sermon? And uh, God, would you uh, give us grace uh, to go out and endure uh, and live lives of faithfulness um, through uh, this message today? Amen. Okay, uh, Daniel 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Hesusurus, uh, a Mede by birth, who was made king over the Chaldean kingdom in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books, according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah, that the number of the years uh, for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. Okay, so if you're not sure what uh, Daniel is talking about with the 70 years, that's okay. We're going to cover it. Um, so... Uh, what Daniel is talking about really is a kind of a, a plot line that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Uh, but we're going to start in uh, Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible. Right? The nation of Israel is standing outside the promised land, right? the land that God promised to give to their ancestor Abraham. God at this point has already chosen them as a special people, and he's uh, identified himself with them. He's rescued them from slavery in Egypt. Right? And he's brought them through the desert, and now he's making this covenant with them. And the actual covenant ceremony is super long, uh, so we're just going to read some bits. Uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 8, uh, verse 2 and 9. So all these blessings will come and overtake you because you obey the Lord your God. Then all the peoples of the earth will see that you bear the Lord's name, and they will stand in awe of you. All right, so I wanted to highlight this idea of bearing God's name, right? So if Israel obeys God, and they actually live in a way where they're being obedient to God as the pattern of their lives, um, and they're walking in wisdom according to his will, the blessing and abundance that God promises to pour out on their lives is going to cause all the nations of the earth to look at Israel and just be in awe of them and to glorify God, right? This is actually a really great book by a uh, Bible scholar named Carmen Imes, and it's titled Bearing God's Name. And the main point of the book is that this idea is what that commandment to don't take the Lord's name in vain is all about, right? So the word take in don't take the Lord's name in vain is really like take up or like carry or bear, right? And that's bearing God's name, right? And what that means is that as God's representative, right, the whole life that you live, 
is a reflection on God to either bring glory to his name or shame and dishonor, right? So don't take up that responsibility vainly, right? That same idea, which applies to us individually, also applies to God's chosen nation as a whole. So continuing on, um, the gist of the covenant that God is forming with Israel is that if they obey God and they're loyal to him, right, all that blessing, good stuff, and they're going to stay in the land to be protected there. But if they disobey, then they're going to be cursed and exiled from the land. So from later in, in chapter 28, but if you do not obey the Lord your God by carefully following all his commands and statutes I am giving you today, all these curses will come and overtake you. You will become an object of horror, scorn, and ridicule among all the peoples where the Lord will drive you. Then the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. Right, so this is the total reverse right, of the like, blessing and obedience path. If they fail to live obediently, then instead of bringing awe to the nations where they all glorify God, they're going to be an object of horror and scorn and ridicule. Right? And when we get back to Daniel's prayer, uh, then we're going to see he's referencing this idea throughout his prayer. Right? Because these covenant blessings and the covenant curses didn't just apply to that one generation in the wilderness standing on the edge of the land. Right? God says, I am making this covenant and this oath not only with you, but also with those who are not here today. Right? And we're going to see in a bit, Daniel firmly sees himself as one of those people right? who wasn't there, but is included in this covenant. And the last point before we leave Deuteronomy uh, is that from the beginning of this covenant, God knows that his people are going to fail, but he also promises that when they repent, they will be restored. Right? From chapter 30, when all these things happen to you, the blessings and curses I have set before you, and you come to your senses while you are in the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, you and your children, uh, and you and your children return to the Lord and obey him with all your heart and all your soul by doing everything I am commanding you today, he will restore your fortunes, have compassion on you, and gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Okay, so there's this expectation that after the exile, Israel is finally going to love God and obey him, and then they're going to prosper even more than before the exile, right? And when that happens, then finally the nations, they're going to see the glory of God, and they're going to honor Yahweh and his name through the obedience of his people, right? And this is actually exactly the picture that we've seen throughout the book of Daniel uh, in a lot of those short stories, right? So he and his friends were obedient to God, and then uh, the Gentile kings, they see that, and they glorify Yahweh as Yahweh shows his power through them, right? And they, they see and glorify Yahweh as the most high God who's in control of everything, and so the hope is that this stops being limited to just these couple people and these couple kings, but it actually happens at a national scale, right, with all of the people in Israel. And so the whole world starts to recognize God's glory. Right? And if you fast forward, uh, but I guess if you fast forward through all of uh, Israel's history, right, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, by and large, Israel is not faithful. Right? They, don't, they don't remain loyal to Yahweh uh, at all. They do not pass go. They do not, they do not collect $200. Uh, 
uh, and straight into exile. <laughs> so um, as God hands them over to the consequences of their disobedience, right, right about in the time of the exile, there is uh, a prophet going around named Jeremiah. And as the people are going out, he makes this prophecy that, honestly, what it is most famous for nowadays is being taken really out of context. Uh, so uh, Jeremiah 29. For this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, this is the Lord's declaration, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. All right, so a lot of you guys know this verse, right? Uh, some things to know. You here, it's plural, right? It's y'all, you know, for the Southerners here, right? Uh, and the plan for y'all uh, is 70 years, basically a full lifetime of horrible exile, followed by the restoration of your people in the days of your children, like when probably most of you have passed away. So this is not God's promise to save you individually from your minor first world problems, and uh, so you can get back to your like hashtag blessed life, right? <laughs> This is, this is about the horrible consequences of generations and generations and generations of covenant disloyalty uh, being dealt with within the span of a single generation, right? And then the restoration of God's people. So this is the 70 years that Daniel was talking about, right? And what is supposed to accompany this restoration, right? So the people should come and they should pray and seek God with their whole hearts, or as Deuteronomy says, come to your senses, turn to the Lord, obey him with all your heart and soul. So, what do we see Daniel do? So I turn my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I think we can learn a lot from Daniel's attitude. Right, so now is the promised time when the restoration will come and you know, the people of Israel are supposed to be returned to prosperity. So is he naming and claiming the good things that God wants to give them? No, it's none of like, the modern American prosperity gospel stuff. That's not, that's not what Daniel does. How about this? Is he acting entitled like, hey God, I was really good this year, um, so you better deliver on the goods too. Right? No. But I think... If we're honest with ourselves, a lot of us somehow kind of assume that God owes us the good life, right? Or at least some sort of protection from bad stuff. And that he owes us that even if we don't, you know, we're not really bearing God's name well. Right? So how about this? Uh, is Daniel instead rejoicing in the forgiveness that our good and gracious God gives to sinners? Still no. Right? And I think this one should hit a little closer to home for us. Because I think we often talk a little bit like that at Hallows, right? We do have a good and gracious God, and He is forgiving towards sinners. But when we encounter sin in our lives or in the lives of others, 
we often have a tendency to jump really quickly to this reassurance right, of God's forgiveness. And I think we could learn a little bit by the way in which God, or Daniel responds. Right? Because what Daniel is doing is more than just a prayer of confession. Sackcloth and ashes are signs of mourning, sadness, and repentance. Right? And it's not just a mental repentance where you think like, oh, that was bad and I shouldn't do that again. And it's not just verbal where I like say it to someone. It's physical, right? Sackcloth is a rough cloth, right? So it's uncomfortable, right? And he's also fasting. And later on in verse 21, it's going to say uh, that, you know, he's, it's going to mention Daniel's extreme weariness. And that's because he spent all day not eating, right? So he's repenting with his body. And we read back in Deuteronomy that the people are going to return to God and obey him with their whole heart and whole soul. And when you hear your soul in English, you might think that that's this like kind of like non-physical identity thing. It's the part that like sticks around after our physical death. But that is not a Christian concept. That is actually Plato, uh, like the Greek philosopher. And the idea that we escape our physical bodies and then like our immaterial souls float off to heaven is actually way closer to the heresy of Gnosticism than it is Orthodox Christianity. Right? So we need to reshape our understanding of what the soul is in the Bible. And there's a really great uh, Bible project video on this, which you can Google later. Uh, 10 out of 10 would recommend. Um, But the word translated into soul from Hebrew is nefesh, uh, which at a literal level means your throat. So think Psalm 42. As a deer pants for water, so my soul thirsts for the Lord. It's a pun, right? So nefesh, your throat, it operates metaphorically to stand for like your whole bodily self, right? Because the food and the water and the air that you need to keep your body alive, they come through your throat, right? So if your nefesh has life, then you are alive. So the biblical soul is you physically in your body, right? It is the exact opposite idea of kind of like the immaterial, floaty, post-body self, right? And so that means when Deuteronomy talked about obeying God with your whole soul, it's talking about what you do, like, with your body, right? And so here's Daniel. He's repenting with his whole body, his whole soul. And he's doing that through fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And that is why we did what we did earlier, right? That is a small ritual way where we are physically participating in what Daniel was doing, Right, trying to get ourselves to see in that same perspective as his, right? Where confession and repentance involves your whole physical self, right? Just as it did for Daniel. And it was probably a little uncomfortable, right? Like, it was uncomfortable for me, right? Bowing physically. And it should have been uncomfortable, right? Daniel was wearing sackcloth and ashes, and he was fasting. Like, he was way more uncomfortable than we were, right? So... Uh, with that as the whole preface, uh, we're going to start going through his prayer. But also, my nefesh is thirsty. So. 
Okay. All right. Daniel 9, uh, starting in verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Ah, Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God, who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keeps his commands. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from your commands and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, leaders, ancestors, and all the people of the land. So do you know, uh, do you notice how Daniel is implicating himself in this, right? We have sinned, we have not listened. But Daniel didn't actually do this stuff, right? He's talking about things with his ancestors, like before he was born, right? He wasn't at the ceremony in Deuteronomy. That was hundreds of years before he was born. And yet he, here he is, he's confessing the sins of every generation of his people, right? And it's more than just confession. He's physically repenting of sins that occurred before he was born. And this is an important clarification. I'm not saying he's guilty of their sins, right? I'm saying that he's repenting of them. Right? His people were on this path, and he was turning away from the failures of his people, right? He's turning away from them and living a different life, right? And Daniel, he lives faithfully, right? He is bearing God's name well. Right? We've seen that throughout all the stories. He doesn't, he doesn't eat the compromised food. He doesn't, uh, or he serves God. He gets thrown to lions for uh, praying, right? Um, and so now he's fasting and he's mourning, and he's physically repenting of sins that he personally did not commit, and you see there, there's a wild contrast between Daniel and our modern times, right? Daniel confesses the sins of his fathers. And for us, a lot of times, if we didn't personally do a thing, then we think it's not our problem. And we don't need to respond to it. And I don't think that our modern sense of individualism is like steering us in the right direction here, right? Like we often tend to think ourselves as these like, distinct individuals apart from any group, so then we can criticize the, communi- or, like, the, the communities that we're a part of, right? Like our church, or even like American Christianity as a whole, and we do it as some sort of detached observer, right? And I don't think this is a good thing, right? So the example that we see in Daniel is different, right? It's to recognize places in our communities, and especially our church communities, right, where we have fallen short, and then respond by confessing those shortfalls as a member of the community, right? And then to embody that repentance by living a life of faithful obedience and bearing God's name well in the areas that we've identified, right? And I think that that repentance needs to be with our whole embodied souls. And that means more, using more of your body than just your fingertips or your thumb, right? And what I mean is you can't really repent on social media, okay? <laughs> right? Okay, so, uh, from verse 7, Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but this day public shame belongs to us, the men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far, and all the countries where you have banished them because of the disloyalty they have shown toward you. Lord, Public shame belongs to us, 
our kings, our leaders, our ancestors, because we have sinned against you. Compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God. Though we have rebelled against him and not obeyed the Lord our God by following his instructions that he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Okay, so Daniel is highlighting this really sharp contrast between God, as in the right, and his people as in the wrong, right? Shame on us. You're in the right. We're in the wrong. And this is not, again, the prayer of a wicked man who is just trying to turn his life around. Daniel lived a more righteous life than any of us here. And yet, instead of accusing God of injustice because of the difficulties that he experienced, he's acknowledging God's justice in everything that's happened. So all Israel has broken your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. The promised curse written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. He has carried out his words that he spoke against us and against our rulers by bringing on us a disaster that is so great that nothing like what has been done to Jerusalem has ever been done under all of heaven. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquities and paying attention to your truth. So the Lord kept the disaster in mind and brought it on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all he has done, but we have not obeyed him. Right, so Daniel, he's recounting the history of Israel. He's talking about the covenant curses from Deuteronomy, which we read in brief earlier. But more than the past, he's also acknowledging the present, right? which is that after everything that had happened, many of God's people were still not following him. And the restoration promised in Deuteronomy and in Jeremiah was tied to the repentance of the people, but most of the people had not yet turned from their iniquity. So now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and made your name renowned as it is this day, we have sinned. We have acted wickedly, Lord. In keeping with all your righteous acts, may your anger and wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors, Jerusalem and your people have become an object of ridicule to all those around us. So here, Daniel starts talking about God's name and God's glory, right? God glorified his name by rescuing his people in the Exodus. But in contrast, his people have become an object of ridicule due to their own sinfulness. And God is no longer being glorified through their actions. But I think there's a really interesting turn of phrase in here. So God asked Daniel to turn his anger away from Jerusalem, and that action would be, in keeping with all your righteous acts. And so I think there's a, there's a really interesting perspective on God's character that Daniel seems to have. And it's telling, right? Daniel seems to see Yahweh as the kind of God, right, whose definition of right and wrong, his character, right, his good, and like, it's, char- it's characterized by mercy, right? The desire to forgive and to do good towards people. And so the way that God rectified the damage done to the name, to his name by his people's disobedience, it did come through suffering and exile. That's clear, right? But it seems that the way that God really wants to glorify his name most is through the redemption of an undeserving people, just like he did in the Exodus. So therefore, our God, hear the prayer and petitions of your servant. Make your face shine on your desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. 
Listen closely, my God, and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that bears your name. For we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. My God, for your own sake, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. So as Daniel finishes prayer with this plea, right, it's again, it's all focused on God's name right, and God's honor. Restore us for your sake, right, for the city that bears your name, for the people that bears your name. Daniel's plea here is that God is going to act in a way that glorifies his own name. Right? He's not asserting his own righteousness. He doesn't think he's entitled to something. Right? But he's humbling himself through his confession, and he's asking for God to show mercy. Right? Because he knows that God is compassionate even when his people don't deserve it. Right? And God's mercy to the undeserving, it doesn't mean being flippant about your sin. Right? Brushing it off as nothing. Right? It means rather doing the works of repentance right, that convey the seriousness with which you want to have a right relationship with God. Wanting to return to him with your whole heart and your whole soul. Right? And that doesn't mean putting God in your debt. It just means earnestly desiring to relate with him and actually bear his name well. And if that's your earnest desire, then it seems that God is abundantly compassionate. And he will respond. So, uh, with that, that is Daniel's prayer of confession. Uh, and so now we're going to transition to the second half of the passage, which is God's response to that prayer. And my Athesh, guys, it's crazy. So, uh, does God grant Daniel? Uh, does He grant Daniel's request? to restore his people. To an extent, yes. Um, the people do return to Jerusalem, and eventually the temple and the walls of the city are rebuilt. Uh, but in a greater sense, no. So the Jews who return to Jerusalem, uh, they continue to exist as subservient to one empire after another. Right? So all the successions of kingdoms that we've heard about in all of the uh, like previous visions, it still happens. Right? And if you read about the return to Jerusalem in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll see that there's this really disappointing reality. Right? That the people of the city are just as morally compromised as they were before, and that the fiery presence of God doesn't return to dwell in the temple. So God doesn't immediately bring the full restoration of his people. Instead, he has a different plan. So while I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my petition before the Lord my God concerning the holy mountain of my God. While I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, reached me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me this explanation. Daniel, I've come now to give you understanding. At the beginning of your petitions, an answer went out, and I have come to give it, for you are treasured by God. So consider the message and understand the vision. Okay. So, uh, I know last week, uh, Frank really talked me up as the history lesson guy, uh, but honestly, these next few verses, I really struggled with. Um, it's a lot of numbers, 
and it's a lot of tracking dates through ancient history. Uh, and I am not the only one who has struggled here. Uh, this is what uh, Joe Sprinkle, he's the author of one of the commentaries using, this is what he had to say. This unit is among the most difficult prophecies in the Bible to interpret. <laughs> Great. From another commentary, uh, the last four verses present the most difficult text in the book, as commentators agree. But they most certainly do not agree as to the right way to understand the figures given. Where others have failed, it would be presumptuous to assume that one more commentator will succeed. <laughs> so where many PhDs have failed, it would be presumptuous to assume that I'm going to get this right either. <laughs> and usually when there's a lot of opinions, uh, I try to find the earliest opinion in, that's recorded in church history and just be really biased towards that. So uh, this is from Jerome. And he's the guy who made the definitive translation of the Bible uh, from Latin, uh, in, or from Greek and Hebrew into Latin, right? And that's, that's the Vulgate. Uh, he was writing in probably the early 400s. And he said, I realize that this question has been argued over in various ways by people of greatest learning. And each of them has expressed his views according to the capacity of his own genius. And so I shall leave it to the reader's judgment as to whose explanation should be followed. <laughs> And then he lists nine, nine different interpretations from church fathers earlier than him. Nine. So I struggled here, both with the text and then with also how to just lead you guys through this, right? And I have tested multiple explanations of this on Carissa. And um, this is honestly the least, I promise you, this is the least confusing way we came up with, right? So what we're going to do, I'm going to explain the problem, and then we're gonna, I'm going to show you three larger categories of views uh, and we had some issues with the charts, so um, just, you know, mercy, please. Um, and then we're going to read through the text. I'll point out some of the complexities. And then we're going to try and pull something useful out of this at the end, I promise, okay? And we're just trying to, you know, like, yeah, trying to consider and understand this vision. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So the tricky part of the passage is that it deals with time, right? There are 70 sets of seven years, and you're going to see that written as uh, 70 weeks of years. So everywhere you see weeks, think seven years, not seven days. Uh, in total, that is 490 years. Um, so uh, the seven weeks, they get split. Uh, I guess the whole timeline of the 70 weeks, it looks like this. There's a set of seven weeks. Uh, and then there's a 62-week chunk, and then there's this final week, and that final week gets split in half, right? And so the deal is that everybody who, like, believes that the Bible is God's inspired word and trusts it, they think that somehow this fits some reality in history, right? And the real trick is how, okay? Because nobody really has an interpretation here that fits super smoothly, Every one of the views that I give you has some weird stuff that's just kind of jiggering it to make it fit. Okay? So I'm going to show you this table. Uh, it should pop up here. Uh, it was put together by that Joe Sprinkle guy um, in his commentary. And so every, uh, every row in the table, uh, from, it's going to get blown up. Every row in the table is a different point in that timeline. Uh, and so column by column, right? The first column is the Antiochus view, right? And this view is basically saying that the vision is predicting the Maccabean revolt that Frank was talking about last week. Right? If you don't remember, Antiochus, he's the Greek king right, who came and attacked Jerusalem 
uh, he offered pigs to Zeus uh, in God's temple in Jerusalem, right? And he's the guy who had the face on the coin, that too, right? Anyways, so Antiochus is way earlier in in history than a lot of the other views. So what this view is trying to do is they're trying to compress that timeline. So what do they do? Uh, They start counting from earlier in history, uh, and then they take the six-year, or the seven the seven-week and the 62-week chunk, and they cause them to overlap a little bit, right? And what do they get from that? Is they get a neat explanation uh, for every part of the prophecy, right? It all fits to something nice. And uh, the abomination of desolation in this passage is the same abomination of desolation talked about in uh, the book of Maccabees. So, cool. Yeah. Yo, you can't even see it at all? Oh, man. Okay, guys. It's, it's funny because, uh, you know, I tried it without the table at one point, and Carissa was like, the table is helpful. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> all right. Um, all right, so the second column, which you can see if you turn around, uh, is the dispensationalist view, which should be popping up, because that's the Antiochus view still. Um, and dispensationalism, that's a big word, but basically this is the seven-year tribulation view, right? So if you've read the Left Behind books, it's that thing. Um, so they're going to try and hit the, uh, have the 62 weeks end with Jesus, and then the final week is a final tribulation out in the future. And so if the problem with the first view was they're collapsing things, this one Uh, if week 69 is Jesus and week 70 is in our future, then you have a 2,000-year gap and counting, right? That they're just like, well, that's, you know, uh, they basically say, well, the text isn't specific that the 70 year has to follow 69. And you're like, "Uh, okay. But the nice thing is that the end is then, like, it's the end, like the end of time, like really the end. And the last column is the Roman view uh, and the Roman view, they want the 69th week uh, to end, or they want the 70th week to end after Jesus too, um, but they're putting it closer to Jesus' time, either with the stoning of Stephen or with the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman emperor Titus in 70 AD. Um, but that date is still like 40-ish years after Jesus, right? So you have uh, kind of this one week that is 40-ish years. There's a lot of varieties within the Roman view um, and a lot of different ways that, the kind of, that, that kind of shakes out. Um, but basically, the general issue is that like, it just almost fits, but then kind of doesn't. And so they kind of like have to hand wave the numbers or say, like, oh, it was, in, it was intended to be approximate, and 70 years is just a lifetime or something like that. So those are your main categories, right? Antiochus, uh, dispensationalist, and the Roman view. So now we're going to read the text, Okay. And um, we'll try and keep the slides up. Hopefully the general text you guys can see. Uh, we'll try and keep those up through the whole periods. Um, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Okay, so this introduces the 70 weeks of years, right? And there's some minor question marks here, but this is honestly the most straightforward part. So, next, next section. No one understand this. From the, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, 
the ruler will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, but it will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, uh, but in difficult times. All right, so the word decree here in the CSB is literally just word, right? So while uh, the Roman dispensationalist views are kind of taking that to mean the royal orders to return to Jerusalem, the Antiochus view says, like, well, Jeremiah gave a prophetic word predicting the city's restoration, and so they, like, they can push the timeline back, right? Um, but even if you go with the royal orders, there's still, like, question marks over which ones, like Xerxes or Cyrus or things like that. Um, but all of that is pointing towards this anointed one. And the really big question is, who's the anointed one? The way that the CSB capitalized that, like capital A anointed, capital O one, right? That, uh, that really implies it's Jesus. Uh, and that's an interpretation, right? It could be Jesus. Uh, but like the ESV, they don't capitalize it. Um, and with the Antiochus view... What you get exactly 62 weeks from Jeremiah's prophecy, 62 weeks of years, uh, is an anointed high priest. So a high priest would be anointed. He would be an anointed one. And he's killed. And that's important because, next verse, after those 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. Okay, so, you know, you got that. And um, same deal with the capitalization here. ESV doesn't have it. Uh, It might be Jesus, or it might be uh, the high priest Onias getting killed, right? So Jesus' crucifixion, high priest Onias. The people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood, and until the end, there will be war. Desolations are decreed. So this coming ruler, is it the anointed one, or is it someone different? And who are his people? Big question mark here, right? So the coming ruler, it could be Antiochus Epiphanes, right? And his people are the Gentile army who destroy Jerusalem. Uh, But then the coming ruler could be Jesus, and his people are then the Jews who put him to death, right? And then the sanctuary that they destroy isn't the temple, it's Jesus' body, which is the temple. And then the coming ruler could also be the Roman emperor Titus, who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD after Jesus is dead. In any case, uh, he will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, right, you'll put a stop to sacrifice and offering, right? So we're dealing with a single week. So we had the seven, we had the 62, and now, you know, that that was 69, 762. And then we're we're on this last final week, the 70th week. So who is it who makes the firm covenant? Uh, And who are the many with whom he makes it? So it could be Jesus's new covenant with the many nations, or it could be Antiochus Epiphanes making a deal with many Jews for them to adopt Greek religion and uh, turn away from Yahweh. Um, But in the middle of the last week, the person who made the covenant stops the sacrifices, uh, and that would be either Jesus fulfilled the Jewish sacrificial system with his death, or Antiochus offers a pig to Zeus in Yahweh's temple, and the temple becomes unfit for use. So, and the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. Okay, we've hit the end. Right? So this thing ends by mentioning the abomination of desolation, which is a really important phrase. So the book of Maccabees uses this phrase to describe what Antiochus Epiphanes does when he dedicates God's temple to Zeus. Um, But Jesus also uses that phrase. And maybe you're thinking, like, whoa, Jesus... Is he going to solve the puzzle for us? 
what does Jesus take it to mean? He doesn't solve the puzzle. <laughs> okay, what Jesus says is in uh, Mark chapter 13 uh, or Matthew chapter 24. And so we're going to read from Matthew. At this point, uh, this is, he's come into Jerusalem with his disciples. The disciples see the temple, and they're like, wow, this is massive. This is awesome. This is so cool. And Jesus replies to them, do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. And they ask him, hey, when is that going to happen? And he says that whole like, wars, rumors of wars, right, will take place, but it's not the end. And he warns them that there's going to be persecution. And he tells them that those who endure to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to all nations, and then the end will come. And then he says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. And so you might think, well, hey, Jesus tells us that the abomination of desolation is sometime after him. Well, can we toss out the Antiochus Epiphanes option? Right? Because that's 200 years before Jesus. Right? So now we're down to just two views. But Jesus isn't done. Later he says, Immediately after the distress of those days, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Son of Man's coming on the, coming on the clouds. Do you guys recognize that one? That is Daniel 7, right? Jake just preached on that two weeks ago. And that's the end of time, right? Jesus comes back. He sets up his eternal kingdom and things are made right here on earth as it is in heaven, right? And that seems to be happening immediately after the time of distress and the abomination of desolation. So does that settle it? Is Daniel's vision about the end of time? See, here's the catch. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. This generation. So remember how this whole conversation in Matthew started. The disciples asked, when is the temple going to get destroyed? And the temple was destroyed within a generation, in 70 AD. So was Jesus talking about the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, or was he talking about the end of time? Honestly, the best explanation that I heard from all, for all of this was from a biblical scholar named Matt Halstead. Right? And he was saying that this prophecy, and a lot of prophecy, is not just a straightforward prediction of here's what's going to happen, but it's rather setting, like providing a set of images or patterns that are acted out in one place in history, and then they become this pattern that is reenacted later in history. All right, so it's act and then reenactment. So perhaps Daniel could see bits and pieces of Antiochus Epiphanes, but also the Romans, and also the end of time. And then Jesus, he could look back at the first act and that abomination of desolation, and he can use that, that as an image to describe what's going to happen, right? With Titus and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and then he at the same time be talking about the end of the world. And that also kind of would explain why so many people seem to think, like so many people throughout history, seem to think that they're living in the end of the world, right? Including, you know, America in the last couple hundred years, or last hundred years or so, right? Because the pattern just keeps applying to our time too. But it begs this question, right? Like that kind of open-ended view. Why would God be so vague, 
And so as the, the, the thing that I've been struggling with as I've been preparing the sermon, right? Gabriel introduces this vision saying, so consider the message and understand the vision. Consider and understand. Right? This is like, honestly, the reason why I was like, I've got to force him to go through this detail, right? Because you have to consider and understand that this vision is God's response to Daniel's prayer and his life of faithfulness, right? In verse 25, it said again, know and understand. Gabriel says when he arrives that he's there to give Daniel understanding. This is not a pointless trick, right? But at the same time, after everything, I'm just like, I can consider the message, but nobody understands this thing. And I was really frustrated, right? And I was in this place for a while, just reading one interpretation after another and just realizing I don't have what it takes to, to get this, right? And then in God's providence, uh, I was listening to a podcast on, uh, it's called OnScript. It's about biblical scholarship because that's what I do. Uh, and they were interviewing a guy named Drew Johnson about a book he wrote on biblical epistemology. And epistemology is how you know that you know something. It's really meta, right? The episode title is called Knowledge by Ritual. And the gist is that when God wants people to know something, he doesn't offer rational proofs uh, or make arguments. What instead he does is he has them do something. And as they participate in what God has told them to do, they gain a new perspective. And then they learn, right? And you don't learn until after you do it. Right? You have to participate in the prescribed ritual first for you to get it. So for example, Genesis 15, Abraham asked God, how can I know that I'm going to possess the promised land? So God has him bring a handful of animals and cut them all in half, right? and then the fiery presence of God walks through the middle or floats through the middle. Right? And then it ritually is saying, so be it to me if I don't make this happen. Right? And then God tells Abraham that his offspring are going to inherit the land, but only after 400 of years of slavery. And Abraham is going to die before it happens. Right? So God doesn't give knowledge with like an argument or rational proof of like, well, here's, how it's going to well, here's why it's going to happen. He instead gives Abraham a ritual that Abraham participates in, and Abraham gains a perspective by doing it. So as Daniel is coming up on 70 long years in exile, where he's been faithful to God through his whole life, right? He's performing these ritual actions, the fasting, the prayer, confessing his sins and the sins of his people. And so what was the perspective that God gave him? On one level, I think the only thing that was really clear from all of that timeline stuff is that Daniel is going to die a long, long time before the happy ending comes. But beyond that, I think Daniel may have gained this perspective that he is small, and he's sinful, and he can demand absolutely nothing from God. And that God's name and his glory and his goodness are far and above and beyond the concerns of his life. And that God's plans and his ways and his foresight is incomparably better than Daniel's. But also that God is merciful, he's kind, he's compassionate and righteous, and he will act eventually. And so maybe when Daniel considered the message, what he understood wasn't a fact or a timeline or a sequence of events, but it was rather trust. A trust that helped Daniel realize that the concerns that might seem so large to us right now are actually really small 
and fading. And a trust that helps us to remain faithful even when the restoration that we're looking for seems really, really far away in the distance and when the things and the tragedies that we see each day seem to just push it further and further away. And Daniel is one of those who died in faith. He never received the things promised, but he saw it from a distance. He greeted it and he confessed that he was living as an exile on earth. But what he received was a homeland better than the one that he came from. He received the city prepared by God. And I think for us, even if we could guess the exact day when Christ returns, if that doesn't make us live more faithfully now, then we wouldn't, we wouldn't know or understand anything. So I think, I think there's a call here from this passage to get a perspective ourselves, of our lives, our problems, and honestly, even most of our prayer requests as something small and short-sighted in comparison to what God is doing throughout history. Because right? if God wants to glorify his name by granting your petitions, he can and he will. But even if he doesn't, we are to bear his name well, regardless. And so if you struggle to have that perspective on a day-to-day basis, then perhaps what we need to do is to follow the rituals of the church, to worship together, praying together, taking communion together, and especially this week, confessing our sins together. And confessing our sins and repenting, not just with our minds or with our mouths, but enacted with our whole bodily selves, our whole bodily souls. And as we do that, and as we live a life of humble faithfulness, but then perhaps the cares and concerns of our day-to-day, like the things that weigh us down and they make us depressed, they occupy our minds, maybe those things will fade further and further into the background behind this ever-growing perspective of the weight of the glory of the name of God and his compassion for us, which he showed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, that is a perspective that I am, I am still trying to understand for myself. But I'd like to just invite all of you to participate with me and join me in seeking it. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come and we confess uh, our uh, sinful, um, small insignificance compared to you. That we have so many times failed to live up to the way that you call us to represent you and bear your name. Uh, God, we confess um, that we are so occupied with just the day-to-day things of our lives and our own concerns. God, we um, confess and we ask for your compassion. God, would you have mercy on us? Would you forgive us? Um, And would you give us patience to wait for the day when your restoration does finally come? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.